Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. In the last episode of Tuning In, I began a conversation with Scott Allen Jarrett, resident conductor of the Handel and Haydn Society Chorus, about Bach's motet Zinget dem Herrn. We left off after Scott began describing Bach's different methods for setting text and how our chorus respond to each. And then I'll examine uh, what musical ideas come out of uh, these representations of the text. S- singing these pieces in Symphony Hall presents an altogether different challenge. But fortunately, we have just the best choir all around, and they are as committed to the exuberance and the profile of the character of the text as any course in the land. And uh, I think that it comes off in a, a wonderful, crisp relief. Uh, at least we hope it does in Symphony Hall. I couldn't agree with you more. And hearing you say that makes me wonder how your experience performing this piece might be different with those doubling instruments and without, if there's any benefit to having them there. I certainly know what the benefit is for us instrumentalists, especially string players, performing music in which we are doubling voices. We can exercise our ability to literally speak with our bows by trying to mimic the way you emphasize or release certain syllables as one has to in in any language. What is your experience of having that doubling there? Well, at the outset, I think the most obvious answer for an instrumental doubling is that it it relieves the burden of the singer. If you have somebody playing the notes along with you, you know, that gives you a little more security and confidence. And so I think, you know, Zingatim Heron is one of those pieces that a lot of collegiate choruses across the globe, you know, attempt some of them every four years, some of them once a decade or something like that. And it represents a true triumph for anybody to be able to sing Zingatim Heron. For our chorus of wonderfully gifted and talented, uh, experienced professionals, the benefit of doing this piece with our instrumentalists truly reveals the instrumental nature of the vocal parts. Conductors love to invite the players to sing more, and they love to invite the singers to play more. And what you can see on the page with Singing Dame Heron 
is I've likened Zing Team here to a Brandenburg concerto for voices. It's very clear to me that the, the kinds of lines that you hear in the fast music is instrumental in its conception, whereas the interior music is more decidedly vocal. So we're, we're blessed with those singers who recognize that and can avail themselves of internal shapings and then equally blessed again with, with players who actually take great pride in availing themselves of these kinds of capacities. We're constantly being told to listen to the text, to read the text, to write it above our music, and to listen to it and to try to imitate the voices. Never am I happier <laughs> to have my colleagues there than when I'm accompanying a chorus and I'm able to do that. I think it's amazing training that impacts the rest of my music making. Text selection is probably the most important step the composer takes. You've mentioned that Bach started with the text. In the outer movements, you've talked about the Psalms 149-150, translations of which will be on the podcast page for our listeners. These texts could not be more evocative when set to music. They describe singing, dancing, they describe drums and harps, rejoicing, praising. Bach's contemporary Handel is renowned for his ability to illustrate text with what we call text painting. What do you think of Bach's setting of the text in this way? Also, a great question, Guy, and I'm glad you asked it. Um, typically, Bach's, uh, when he's setting a text and he's using some sort of device, a pictorial device that, that might depict what the text is about or referencing, it's often not quite as obvious as what Handel would do. I mean, Handel, Handel's real good at putting that sort of stuff in neon lights or on a big billboard. And Bach is often a little more subtle about it. And just a sort of closer look could reveal all kinds of things. For example, there's a, a wonderful, the fugue that's in the first section, Die Kinder Zion, sagt fröhlich, über ihrem Könige, sie sollen loben seinen Namen im Reihen. And that last word, it's sort of an antiquated word, and I think in more modern editions of the German translation of the Psalms, they use just straight up tanzen or dance. But a raya is an old country dance, and that is the word that's in uh, the Luther Bible. So you'll hear Die Kinder ziehen sein fröhlich über ihren Rödigens, die sollen It goes basically one syllable per note until that word Raya. And then they sing for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight, and into the ninth measure on one word. He's creating a wonderful dance around many, many notes for that word dance. Another good example of, of an instance of this is just before that, uh, the choruses sort of come together and a little more tautly without much sort of horizontal music. They sing, Israel freue sich, das, 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 der ihn gemacht hat. And when they do this, the busyness on the page is on the word for rejoice. Israel freue sich. A lot of busy movement for Freya, for the word rejoice. And by contrast, in all of this music, the only instance where 
All of that business, all of that ornate, fast note material defers is for the pronoun des, 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 which refers to God. Israel rejoice in him that ingemachtat, that has made you. So, des, 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 you hear uh, in that repetition. That repetition does not exist in the psalm, of course. It's added by the composer. So, there are more subtle text setting uh, from the hands of the composer. Maybe just one more, which is the final bit of that opening fast first movement. And after the subject that talks about the dance that I've already mentioned, the psalm talks about uh, that, that uh, we will sing the praise of God with instruments. So the sopranos take the, the fugue first, uh, and eventually they get to, with timbrel and harp, let them sing praises unto him, or the German, mit pauken und mit harpen sollen sie spielen. And for this, Bach begins with um, a, a sort of a motto theme. Mit pauken und mit So out of a very busy, ebullient texture comes this motto arpeggio, all the way up to top F, and then back down again. So every time the singers get to sing Pelkin, which we think of as timpani, but uh, in the Psalms, it's timbrel. Every time that comes, there's a sort of percussive shooting out of the texture of this wonderful arpeggio. What I found amazing about this first movement, and especially this fugue that you're talking about, is that I imagine that if I were Bach, and I were the world's unsurpassed master of counterpoint as he was. Bach's fugues, it's pretty much agreed upon, are the zenith of fugal writing. That if I were to compose a fugue, I would make sure everybody knew I was starting, that things would pause and then we would start the fugue. But thank goodness I'm not Bach. Bach is much better than I am. And this fugue, as complex and interesting as it is, starts while members of the second choir are going about their business with completely different material. Before we spoke, you sent me your study notes on the motet, thoughts and ideas you come up with while looking it over, and you had some insights into this fugue that I found interesting. Well, you're, you're so nice, Guy, to actually regard my notes, but uh, you should win a merit badge for uh, being able to read them. I've, I've never got very good marks uh, for handwriting, so... But you're exactly right. So there's a brilliant virtuosic material that opens the motet. And then for the last three verses that he sets, or for the last three lines, the last verse and a half from the opening movement are given to a, a remarkable fugue. And just as you say, it starts with one of the two choruses introducing the fugue in a normal way. One voice sings a subject, and then another voice enters after that section has finished. All the while, the other chorus, the second chorus, is singing material that was from the opening. And it's just sort of like backup singers almost, if you imagine it that way. But the study then reveals an amazing architecture from the composer, which is the first uh, four entrances are sung by the choristers of choir one. And it starts with the highest voice, soprano, and then you go down through alto, tenor. And then when it gets to the bass voice, he joins the chorus two bases, and then he goes back up uh, successive entrances. So when the tenors come back with the fugue subject again, all tenors 
not just choir one. Uh, and the same thing for alto and then uh, soprano. So you can imagine what that does is create a compositional crescendo over the final third of this first movement. And at the end of it, and actually a way that Handel always excelled at, when there's a big horizontal or holophonic texture like this, when he comes to that great moment where all voices come together, it, it's just hard to beat uh, when they all sing together. It also sounds like he's just having compositional fun without seeing the score, which of course no one around him did because all we have are parts and a manuscript score. You wouldn't necessarily know that there is that descending and ascending shape. Uh, the choirs may not be configured in a way where you can follow who is singing. And it's so incredibly busy while that's all happening. It just sounds like he's flexing his muscles. You're exactly right. And I think for people who focus on the vocal works of Bach, you know, the vast majority of the time we're, we're dealing with sin and death. And so we have something that is just him of praise. Uh, we're relieved of having to sort of consider that. And the music just could not be more electrifying. It is it's extremely difficult. So when a collegiate chorus undertakes to do this, you know, they'll spend six months trying to learn the opening and closing movements, and then they'll sort of forget that, that there's an inner part. And in some ways, uh, my own study about the piece has revealed that that inner part is really what where the meaning of the piece is uh, to be extracted. Bach sets these um, almost sort of two-dimensional psalms of praise for beginning and end. But when the interior of the piece comes, we have this really touching imagery as a father shows uh, mercy for his young children, so does the Lord for all those who fear him with childlike purity. And all of a sudden, this very joyful, overt piece becomes extremely inner and tender. Maybe it was for the funeral, not just of any person, but maybe maybe a young person. There are a lot of images around children. Vater, Kindlein, die Kinderzion, and then Kindlich Fürsten, Wein. So there's a sweetness about that image that the next time I perform it, I, I want to experiment with. And so that's, in essence, the theological construct that you were talking about, the three sections creating one of... Well, I, I think composers of Bach's day, uh, certainly before and after, there was an expectation that you 
you have a scripture, you have a biblical text, and then you have some sort of theological reconciliation of what that's supposed to mean to you today. That's what the theology does. And then you also have some sort of emotional or prayerful response so that there is a, you know, a multivalenced interaction with a text. You're not just left alone to sort out what does it mean, how these texts fit together, and what we are meant to learn. I wonder, Scott, do you think there's a difference between delivering the text clearly and delivering it with a conviction and even with belief? I mean, as you mentioned, all of Bach's singers, all of the congregation members, obviously, were Lutherans. Everyone in Leipzig was basically one thing, and that is Lutheran. We live in a pluralistic society, and a singer's personal belief, or lack thereof, does not factor at all into his or her joining our chorus. Our audience probably holds a variety of beliefs informed by different traditions, and few, if any, understand German, certainly not the German of Bach's time. What does this all mean to a singer attempting to represent Bach's intentions, which were undoubtedly religious? One of the reasons when we established the Bach experience that you kindly referenced earlier in the, our chat, one of the reasons that we want to include some educational point uh, in the lecture and the demonstration is because, first of all, we're dealing with a text that is in a very different language that not many people have working understanding of. The theology is also, uh, it's a pre-enlightenment theology, and it's difficult to sort of reconcile sometimes what those concepts are. And the music is from a different land and a different century. So in some ways, I think we have actually an easier time accessing it because it doesn't conflict with anything that we might have grown up with so to speak. I grew up in near the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, and uh, the cantatas of Bach were not regularly featured in Baptist churches there, I'll tell you that much. So uh, for me, there's really nothing in my own experience and background that could have predicted that this is the music that I would spend more time with than any other. And that is a wonderfully freeing uh, position from which to start and interact with Bach studies. Also, in the 21st century, we now have many, many, many decades of receipt of this extraordinary compositional legacy as concert hall music. The St. Matthew Passion and the St. John Passion are liturgical pieces. They exist for a specific religious observation on the church calendar and within a liturgical practice and observance in Leipzig. The fact that they are... 98% of the time now part of concert hall subscription series and events and so forth. And almost the, the, the Matthew Passion in particular, you know, you, you can, you can do that piece any time of the year. You don't have to just wait for Lent to come around. So universally received and understood this music has become. So with that in mind, I think, you know, all of us have the chance to come to this music and avail ourselves a variety of access points. And I think for Handel and Haydn Society, what distinguishes, amongst many things, performance from us is Harry's absolute insistence that whatever we do be musical and with intention. And, you know, and, and he gets at us from the very first rehearsal. He will address that before he will address, you know, is it together? Are you too loud or too soft? Or are you in tune or are you not? You know, any of those sorts of more state or boring, frankly, kinds of considerations. He, he, he trusts that we will sort that out, but he is interested in the highest possible musicality right away. 
And he knows that this music will have the best chance to read in a hall like Symphony Hall if those values are present from the beginning. And um, that's been a great inspiration for me as a conductor as well, to be on the stage and to feel that energy that uh, our musicians are capable of conjuring. Scott, one last question. When we come back, is there anything that you would like to sing more than Zing It? I mean, really. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 a, it's a, I remember a moment, uh, sort of maybe the third or fourth week of the pandemic, and, you know, I had this just very sad realization that I had not made music with another living soul and in four weeks and um i was was really sad about it and i remember being moved to tears at the thought of being with three other people and singing a chord just the simple act of singing a chord which i'm not able to do alone you know the the, the harmony of the spheres made possible by the communal aspect of what we can do together and the thought that we might not have that for a long period of time was really, was really sad to me. And, and honestly, the only thing that has sort of um, brought me out of it have been many conversations with my musical colleagues uh, and friends, but also uh, our, our patrons and subscribers and donors from all of these organizations. I try to call three to five of them in each, within each organization each week and to a person. They have reaffirmed to me uh, what's important for them in their culture, in their life, and, and how they invest their time and interest. And I have uh, a greater confidence than ever before that um, the values that we can cultivate in an institution like the Hamilton High Society have a very, very bright future. Hmm. Well, Scott, I am moved and delighted to have taken part in one of those conversations, especially knowing how much they mean to you. They certainly mean so much to me, and I'm sure to our listeners, there is lots more Bach and lots more other music to talk about, and I am sure we will meet here again. Thank you so, so much for your time and expertise. Thanks for doing this, Guy. It's really been a pleasure. Scott Allen Jarrett is resident conductor of the Handel and Haydn Society Chorus and joined me by phone from his home in Boston. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at handelandheiden.org slash podcast, where in addition to previous episodes, you can find supplementary materials such as program notes, biographies, terms discussed in this episode, translation of the German text, and a copy of Bach's manuscript to Zinget dem Helm. I hope you'll join me for the next episode. 